I always like to begin the sermon by praying, so would you uh, just bow your hearts this morning and let's, let's let the Lord, let's ask the Lord that he would speak to our hearts through his word. God, we are mindful of our littleness this morning. As we just sang that song, our, our worth is not our own. The Apostle Paul says that we cannot boast in ourselves. There's nothing to boast on because grace was given to us free so that we would not boast. So Lord, we come to you this morning on equal ground, and that ground is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We come as beggars in need of bread. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, Jesus, you said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. May we be poor in spirit, open, receptive, broken in ourselves, Lord, so that we can hear and receive from you. Would you take this heavenly manna that you have given through your word, and would you dispose of it to us this morning? Would you feed our souls that we may walk out of here refreshed, edified, and encouraged? In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 73, I have entitled this sermon, Truly, God is good, dot, 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 but as for me, I'm not sure. We're gonna see the psalmist will wrestle with God's goodness, that he knows that God is good from, a, from a, 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 a theoretical standpoint, but as far as experiencing it in himself, he's not sure. So let me give you the big idea of the sermon, kind of the main theme. We will see the psalmist will wrestle with his knowledge of God's goodness, knowing that God is indeed good to his people, and yet struggling with sensing it and understanding it for his own life. As a result, he was stuck until he went into the sanctuary, until he came into the presence of God and the presence with other believers. And so let me suggest that we too get stuck. We get stuck in the moment that we're in. We get stuck in a rut, whether it's doubt or fear or insecurity or depression or anxiety or whatever it may be, we get stuck and I hope this sermon will help you see how to get unstuck and truly see that God is good. So let me share with a, an introduction as a story. Some of you know, just from what you've heard a little bit, my background with missions and church planting and evangelism. And so in 2012, my wife and I and our newborn son, well, he was uh, about 13, 14 months at that time, Luke, we moved from Chicago where we were doing church planting and I was pastoring a church. We were working with refugees there to Detroit. And we settled in East Dearborn, right along the border, close to Wyoming there, Ford in Wyoming, that kind of northeast corner of Detroit. And I was going to be the director, or I was the director of a ministry called Immigrant Oasis. It was connected to a church plant and Immigrant Oasis was an outreach arm, if you will, an evangelistic arm of this church to work specifically with the Arabic speakers, many of whom were refugees, who in the area had settled in and come to and were trying to assimilate to American culture. And so our center was kind of holistic in nature. We taught English as a second language. We helped them navigate their medical bills or their DTE bills. We had a coffee house ministry where we'd invite them just to build relationships with them, many of them coming from Muslim backgrounds. And that was what God had called us to, and we were very excited. I was very excited to come alongside of this church as a pastor, but also as a director of this organization. 
We had a beautiful building right in the Warrendale neighborhood of, of Detroit, which is West, West Detroit. And when I got there, everything that went wrong, <laughs> that you could possibly think of, went wrong. Our financial situation took a turn, which we were not expecting, so we had to raise support like missionaries. The staff that we had, unbeknownst to me coming in, had a lot of turmoil within themselves, and there was some, the, the former director had caused quite a bit of commotion and problems, and they were on their way out. They had one foot in and one foot out. And when I arrived, they just kind of said, well, there's a new person here, we're just gonna go. And everything changed. And I remember one night, it was Tuesday night, we had an English class, ESL class on Tuesday nights, and I came to the building, all prepared for my lesson, and we had opportunities to share the gospel through our teaching English as a second language. And I was all excited and all ready because I was like, okay, well, you know, things are kind of falling apart here, but it's going to be okay because God called me here, right? We, we sold our house in Chicago. We relocated to Michigan. And I sat there in an empty, vacant building watching the clock. And an hour went by and not one student came. And I closed my books up. I'm not, a, I'm not one, you can ask my wife, I'm not one that can cry easily. <laughs> There's probably a lot of reasons for that. But I started crying. I mean, the tears, I just couldn't stop. I could not turn it off. And I remember pouring my heart out and looking up and saying, Lord, I don't understand. We, 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 we gave everything. We, we said goodbye to our life in Chicago, which we loved. And we moved here by faith. We're raising support. We're doing all these things. And yet, I don't, see you working. And I was having a, a crisis moment. And I felt stuck. And I just poured my heart out. And I wasn't angry at God. It wasn't that. I was just very confused. And I felt very alone in that empty building, very alone. And I just said, Lord, help me to see what you're doing here. Because I don't understand. Have you ever felt that way before? I'm sure you have. You've been in situations where you're like, okay, Lord, why am I here? Whether it's a difficulty in marriage or a difficulty with parenting or a difficulty in a job situation or maybe something that you felt God call you to and it didn't quite work out like you thought. And let me just say, newsflash, life never works out the way we think. <laughs> it never does. But that's how God gets our attention. He uses those unexpected. He throws those curveballs at us to help us rely upon him and not ourselves. And at that moment in Detroit, I felt so alone and so like within myself, incomplete and broken. And so the psalmist does in chapter 73 of the Psalms. So my goal for this sermon is I'm gonna walk you through verse by verse, a little bit different than what I typically do when I'm preaching God's word. I'm just gonna go, we're gonna go one verse at a time, time, and I'm gonna expound on that verse as we go, and at the very end of the sermon, I'll give you some practical lessons to apply to your life. So let's jump in, ready? Okay, it's gonna be a good ride, I believe. Verse one, truly, God is good to Israel. That word truly means definitely, Indeed, absolutely, it's an indicative statement, meaning a statement of fact, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now, we'll go back to that in a second. Let's do a little background, a little context. Who is Asap? 
Well, ASAP simply means, his name means in the Hebrew language, gatherer, gatherer. And that's exactly what he was. He was true to his name. He was a gatherer of God's people for worship. He was of the tribe of Levi, Levite, so of the Levite tribe, so he was pastoral. He was one of the ministers that God had set apart and, and had called on to his own. And he was in charge of the worship of the sanctuary, of the house of God, to teach a guild, that is a group of men, to teach them songs, hymns. He was a poet. He would write the songs down. He would sing the songs or have them sung. And he was the right hand a right-hand co-laborer with David. In fact, in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 4, you see that then he, this is David, appointed some of the Levites as ministers. There's the word, for we get a word pastor there. Before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief. Okay, so he was the lead worship leader within the sanctuary of God, worked with David, and he has written a number of psalms. In fact, he wrote 12 psalms, starting with Psalm chapter 50 and Psalm 73 is what we're going to look at today. And I can relate to this dude, right? He's a pastor. He's a worship leader. He's got a heart for God. He's serving every, every week. He's preparing God's people for worship. And as I'm studying this, I'm like, I, I feel this, brother. I, I, I understand this. I also understand his struggle, and so do you. And so here he is, this man of God, who is wrestling with the goodness of God versus the injustices and the oppressions of the world. So let's keep going. Truly, again, that word means, it's an emphatic word, means definitely, absolutely, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. The word pure means, means to be clean, but more than that, it means to be devoted or even set apart, and it has the idea of sincerity. See, to be pure in heart doesn't mean that we have to be perfect, because we know that we fall short of that every day, but to be pure in heart means we're sincere. We're sincere. We're devoted. And so here is Asaph saying, God, you're good to Israel, to the nation of Israel, because God had called Israel to himself. And you're good to those who are sincere and pure in heart. Verse 2, there's a tone change. Now, think of music. When you listen to a piece of music, say Mozart, Beethoven, and you're listening to it, and all of a sudden, the music changes. The melody's different. It goes a different way. It's a darker tone, a, a minor tonality, if you will, it changes. That's exactly what he, because this is a song. It was put as a poem and then put to music. Verse two, but as for me, this phrase you're going to see four times in Hebrew, it's wa'ani, two words. Wa means but and ani means me. But for me, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped First of, all, he's, first of all, he says, my feet had almost stumbled. The word stumble means to turn aside or to be thrust, thrust away. The idea is to descend. Now, if you're thinking from a musical standpoint, you have descending notes or line or melodies, so it's going down. So that's the idea. This is a poem, and it's going to descend. It's going to go down, and then it's going to go back up. 
And that's a good thing because we want it to go back up. We want it to resolve. Just like when you're listening to music, if, if the, the music's kind of somber and it's going down, you want it to end on an on a upbeat or a high note, if you will, a higher melody. And that's what we'll see later on. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. They almost descended. Further, my steps had nearly slipped. The word slip means to be poured out or to gush. It's a Hebrew pictorial word, as in when Moses hit the rock uh, in the desert, in the wilderness, and the water gushed out. Here, Asaph is saying, my strength is gushing out. Have you ever felt that way before? I have. Hundreds of times. Because life is hard. Circumstances change. Things don't work out like we think they should work out. And we feel like we're gushing out. We feel like our strength is slipping aside. And as American people, we don't like to feel like we don't have strength, right? We are independent. We are self-sufficient. The gospel says uh, you can't be truly yourself until you lose yourself. Jesus says deny yourself. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. That's how you'll truly be yourself. We live in an age where people are like, find yourself. Find what makes you you. Be happy. Find your happiness, the scriptures teach opposite. Lose your life. Don't stand on your own strength. Stand on the, stand, stand on the strength of Christ. And so here the, the psalmist is saying, my steps nearly slipped, meaning I was gushing out. Now note that he says nearly slipped. He had not slipped. And all of us have been here where we feel like we're trying to climb up and we're slipping down. You take one step forward, ever try to climb up a hill or maybe here in Michigan, snowy hill, right? You're taking your kids sledding or your grandkids sledding and you're trying to climb up that hill and you just keep slipping back. That's the picture here. He's climbing up and he's slipping back. He nearly slipped. He didn't go all the way down. Verse three tells us why. Why did he nearly slip? Why was he gushing out? Verse three tells us, for I was envious of the arrogant. Ah, there it is. There it is. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Envy. The word envy has the idea of not only, not, uh, not only wanting something that someone else has, but wishing that they themselves don't have it or should not have it. <laughs> so it's, it's two things. It's one, I wish I had that, whatever that may be. And then secondly, they don't deserve that, Right? And that's where we get caught because every single person can relate to that. Envy can be very subtle. It can sneak up on us. And all of a sudden you're having a very sour thought about someone else. And you think, man, why do they get all the breaks? Hmm? Man, why do they get that? Whatever that may be. Facebook, social media is the quintessential you know, stage for envy. <laughs> Because sometimes you see or scrolling through and you see someone's post and you see their pictures and they look all perfect and put together. They look like they have the perfect put together family and they have all this, you know, they're on this vacation and it's like everything looks great and shiny and happy and beautiful. And you in your heart say, what in the world? They don't deserve that. I deserve that. They could care less about the things of God. And here I am giving myself every single day to try to do my best to serve the Lord, and I've got nothing. <laughs> Comparison, jealousy, envy, and we swallow it like a pill. 
and so did ASAP. And he was a minister. He was a worship leader. It affects us all, folks. So he says, for I was envious of the arrogant. The word arrogant there means literally the puffed up ones. The idea is they are boastful. They have these giant puffed up heads, if you will. But he's envious of that because they have it all together. At least that's what he thought. When I saw the prosperity, there's the word shalom. Shalom in Hebrew means to flourish, to be sound, sound in mind, to have the sense of, of prosperity in the sense of spiritually speaking of like tranquility, tranquility and peace and soundness and good health and all that. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, the word wicked means those who are guilty. See, Asaph knew that these people were guilty. They deserved God's judgment because they weren't following God's law and yet he's envious of them because they have it all. At least he thought they did. They have it all figured out. Life was working out just fine for them. Verse four, for they have no pangs until death. There's a word picture here. It literally means to be banded or, or kind of wrapped with like tight with strings or with, with like, a, like a, maybe like a chain to be banded together to be tightly wrapped. They have no pangs or they're not wrapped until death. In other words, they don't show any signs that of, of, of death. Their bodies are healthy. They're strong. They have no health issues. They have no nothing. You know, there's a pep in their step. They've got strength and firmness. There's no wrappings, if you, if you will, of death around them. Their bodies are fat and sleek. The word fat there means to be firm. Sound, as in strong, durable. Verse five, they are not in trouble as others. The word trouble means they're not, they don't have the, the distress and the, the, the issues that others have. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. The word stricken means to be stricken down by a disease like leprosy. Further, it can mean defeat, to be defeated. Now, some scholars believe that Asaph was really struggling with his health. He had some health issue going on. We're not sure what. It's speculation, but it seems to fit the context, especially with his references of the body and health and soundness and and this idea of shalom. And so, in other words, he's looking around. And that's that's the first problem, right? When we look around rather than looking up, (laughs) he's looking around and he's seeing these ungodly people, they have no health issues, they have no pain, they're, they're strong, they're durable, they have it all figured out. And he's like, what in the world, Lord? What in the world? What about me? Have you ever been there before? Um, hello, of course you have. <laughs> you may not say it out loud, but our hearts, our hearts can be deceitful as Jeremiah says. Desperately so. And he is struggling as he's looking around and he can't understand why all these so-called ungodly people who are, could care less about God seem to be absolutely fine, not stricken, not struggling. Verse six, therefore pride is their necklace. The word pride there means swelling. The, the picture 
the word picture is that of a, of a sea swelling and surging. You know, you go to, let's say you go to Lake Michigan, for example, not so much here in Lake Erie, but Lake Michigan, and there's some maybe bad weather the day before, and you go, and it's a red flag day. I like red flag days, because <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, get the body board out, you know, let's get the boogie board out, let's do this. But, you know, you see the waves, they're surging, they're ebbing and flowing, there's movement and it says here, therefore, pride, their swelling is their necklace, meaning they, they, they walk around like, look at what I have. They're all consumed with, them, with themselves, surging, puffed up, like wearing a proud necklace. And the violence cover them, covers them as a garment. Charles Spurgeon said, they brag and bully, they bluster and browbeat, as if they had taken out a license to ride roughshod over all mankind. Now, Asap's struggling here because he knows that they are ungodly, wicked people that could care less about God. They could care less about other people. They're consumed with themselves, and yet he is envious because they've got it all. At least he thought they did. They had it all externally. They had it all figured out. Life was working out for them just Fine, but not for this servant of God. Verse seven, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. The King James Version says that they are, they, their eyes are protruding with fatness. It says their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than their heart could wish. The, the idea of fatness is a reference to this idea of, of kind of thickness, as in puffed up, again, kind of metaphorical here. There's definite wordplay going on. But the idea that their eyes are so filled and so fat with the things of this world, it says that their eyes swell out and their hearts overflow with follies. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. The word scoff here means they mock, they jeer, they deride. They're basically like... You guys, you and your so-called God, who do you think you are? Now, we live in a culture that is much more like that now, where they put labels and they, they, they ostracize us for following Christ. That's what Asab was experiencing. They were speaking with malice. The word malice means corruption. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They were big bullies. And that's what the world is, folks. The world is, is full, of, full of bullies. And Satan is leading the charge. He's a bully. Threatening, oppressing, condemning, seducing. That's what he does. Verse 9. They set their mouths, the they is referring to the ungodly, to the wicked. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. It's beautiful. This is a poem that was put to, to music to be sung by God's people, but it's very poetical. It's very beautiful and it's very word picture-esque. And the idea is they, their mouths are against the heavens. The word heavens here in Hebrew can mean the visible sky, as in what you see above, and can also mean the universe beyond and ultimately heaven itself, God's abode. So they're speaking against heaven. They're saying, ha, huh, yeah, there's a God. Arrogantly, proudly, and foolishly. And their tongue struts through the earth. 
They're speaking as they're walking through the earth about how good they have it. We don't need God. We don't need heaven. We've got all this, right? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we shall die. It's the quintessential understanding of, of, of postmodernism, which simply means live for the now. Live existentially. Live in the moment that you're in. Live it up. Do whatever you want. And by the way, that's exactly what our young people are being taught in our culture today. Whatever feels right, it's right. Do it. Be you. You be you, right? And that's what these people were doing. Nothing's new under the sun, the Bible tells us. This was a couple thousand years ago, 3,000 years ago, and there's, it's the same stuff today. Therefore, here's a little bit of a tone change here. As a result, verse 10, as a result of this, his people, that his people refers to God's people, turn back to them and find no fault in them. So now we have a double whammy here. Not only is Asap struggling with his own self, wrestling with God's goodness versus the injustice he sees, but now he's like, but God, your people are being persuaded. They're turning to them, and they, not, they find no fault in them. That's the seduction of the world, folks. That's exactly Genesis chapter 3. The devil says to Eve, and Adam was right there, right there, shoulder to shoulder. He says to Eve, did God really say not to eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Did he really say that? Oh, you can eat of it. In fact, if you do, you can be like a God, right? It's the same lie, repackaged, rewrapped over and over every year, every decade, every century. And God's people in this day and age that Asaph lived were being turned away and seduced and blinded to the wickedness of these ungodly people. They turn back to them. They find no fault in them. Oh, it's okay. It's going to be fine. It's not a big deal. It is a big deal. It's a huge deal because that's the seduction of this world. The seduction of the devil is that you can be your own God. You don't need God. You can have it all. You can be enlightened, self-sufficient, especially here in the West, folks. This is a big, big seduction because we're taught from itsy-bitsy tiny people. We're taught you can have it all. Why would you need a rescuer? Jesus, Yeshua, the rescuer. Why would you need a rescuer when you are already in yourself complete, right? And so God's people were being turned aside. Verse 11. And they, the they goes back to the ungodly, and they say, how can God know? The word in Hebrew, yada, means to see or to observe. How can God really see what I'm doing? How can God really know? Does he, does he really see? Does he really care about all these little details? No. He's got more important things to worry about or think about or see. How can God know? How can God see? Is there knowledge in the most high? Is he truly omniscient, all-knowing? They're questioning. That's exactly what Satan did to Eve and to Adam. Does God, did God really say? That's what he does. He gets us to question the authority of God. And he says, you can have your own authority. You can write your own text. 
That is your own authority. You can live the way you want. Do you really need that? You can go to church. That's fine. Go to church. Tithe. Worship. Great. But do you really need to surrender this and let Jesus be your all? No, you can be your person, your own all in all. And then God can be a little side project. Uh Uh-uh. Uh-uh. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Verse 12. Behold, this is a great word. Again, there's a tone change. Think of a musical piece. It's shifting, it's moving, it's flowing. It's kind of getting to the ultimate consummation, the end point that we're gonna see here in a bit. Behold, in other words, pay attention, look. When you see this word behold, it means pay attention. Get ready for a change. Something's coming down the pipe, down the road. Behold, these are the wicked. Okay, that's a true statement. This is how they operate. This is their MO. This is how, that, how it all goes. This is how they function. This is the world system, folks. This is it. Always at ease. Now he's back to a false reality. They increase in riches. The word always there means to have continual ease. The word ease means to be careless, carefree. They're always at ease. Now, is that true? No. See, what happens is when we get stuck, our reality gets skewed. And our reality is narrowed, and we can't see what is the bigger picture. See, Asaph was stuck in this rut. He said, God, they're always careless. They're always at ease. Everything's working out for them. Was that true? No, because things don't work out for the ungodly people, at least not like they think it will, especially at the end, as we'll see. But Asaph was stuck in himself. He said, they're always at ease and they increase in riches. They're getting more and more rich. And see, that's gonna, that can be a tough pill to swallow. When I was in Detroit and I was struggling that particular night and I didn't understand what God was doing, that's what I was wrestling with. God, we've left everything. We burned the ships back in Chicago. We're here in Detroit we're here to serve you, and we're living by on a shoestring budget, raising support as missionaries, and yet I'm not seeing any fruitfulness. And there's people in this world that could care less about the things of God. And they're getting richer. They've got bigger houses, bigger cars, bigger TVs, you name it. And not that that's what I was struggling with, materialism. I wasn't. It was just the, the, the fact or the, the sense of why have I given everything here to this, and yet things aren't working like they should. A plus B is C, right? Well, not always. Not in God's economy. And that was a test of my faith. And so it is for ASAP. Verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Now we come to the middle of the composition, right in the middle, and he's saying, because of all this, have I kept my heart in vain? Meaning, has this been an empty, purposeless endeavor? Have I put my ladder against the wrong side of the house? Is it even worth it? Have you ever felt that way? I mean, let's be honest, folks. We all feel that way sometimes. I'm serving you, Lord. I'm doing my very best to raise my kids and do this and that, and yet things aren't going like they should be going. Is this in vain? Is there a mistake here? Is this some cosmic, you know, laugh episode going on? I mean, think about Job. Job had no idea that Satan 
had this scheme and this plot and was doing all this stuff. And the whole idea of the book of Job is he's wrestling with God's justice and goodness to the point where he curses the day he was born. Ever felt that low before? That you wish you weren't even here? I mean, this is real stuff, folks. We look at these Psalms and it's like a mirror back to ourselves, 100%. It says, have I in vain kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence? The idea is integrity, devotion. Verse 14, for all the day long. There's that word all again. He is, he's kind of dramatic. <laughs> and we can be dramatic too when we're stuck. All day long, I've been stricken. There's that word stricken. But now he's saying, I've been stricken. They, the ungodly, the wicked, they're not stricken. I'm stricken. I'm defeated. I'm filled with this disease. I am struggling and rebuked every morning. The word rebuke means punished. He felt like perhaps God was punishing him. So did Job, right? All the day long. It's a little cessational, but that was his reality. Verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, meaning I will talk about this, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Oh, now it gets real. Now he's even more stuck because he's a leader. He's a pastor. He's working with the king, with David. He's in charge of the worship in God's house. And he says, if I talk about how I really feel, if I talk about what's going on, it could turn the generation of your children away from you, especially those who are weaker in faith or younger even. And so now Asap feels more alone than ever because it's all inside of him. He's like, if I talk about this, it could all come undone. And then people will be like, wow, if Asap is struggling and he's called by God from the tribe of Levi, if he's struggling, what about me? And so he's even further stuck. Verse 16, now it turns from minor to major. It goes up. It's descending, descending, descending. It goes to the bottom, <laughs> and now it's going back up. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. So the idea is when I thought of try, how to try to figure this out, when I try to make this work in my head, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I could not do it until, there it is, there's the word, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned there and. Who's the there? The there is the ungodly. It all was coming apart until he came into worship. He came with a heavy heart. Some of you did today. He came feeling wearisome and toilsome. Some of you did today. He came in, and when he came into the sanctuary, into the presence of God, because for Israel, God's presence was in the sanctuary, was in the tabernacle, and then eventually within the temple. And when he came, it was like, oh, he could breathe again. It was like when God made it, mold, molded and made Adam out of clay and then he breathed in him the breath of life and he became a living being. Before that, he was inanimate, just clay. And Asap, as he walked in the, into the sanctuary of God, it was like God breathed his breath into him and he became alive. And so it is with you and with me. He saw the presence of God. 
And then he discerned. The word discern means he understood. He had true understanding, comprehension. There, the ungodly, the wicked's end. Truly, there it is, the same word as in verse one. Truly, definitely, emphatically, you set them in slippery places. He now comes to the realization that I'm not on a slippery slope. They are, right? They are. You make them fall to ruin. You hold me up. Jesus said, no one, those who the Father have given me, nobody, no one can pluck them out of my hand. No one. He's not slipping down a slope. The wicked are. The ungodly are. He flips the script, folks. He changes it because he's in the sanctuary. How they are destroyed in a moment. The they, again, is the ungodly, the wicked. In a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, just like in Noah's flood. In a moment. Like a dream when one awakes. Oh, Lord, when you rouse yourself, when it's your time, you despise them as phantoms. The word phantom means as a vapor, a mist, nothing. There's no substance to them because they're of this world. They could care less about the things of God and there's no true substance. Who cares that they're getting rich and they're sleek and firm? They're but phantoms. Now he goes back to uh, his own autobiography, his personal narrative, when my soul was, note the past tense, because he's come out of it now. And that's a good thing. We need to come out of the stuckness, right? When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. The King James says, I was a bruised, uh, excuse me, a brute beast before thee. In other words, he was acting like an animal. You know when an animal's in a corner, even a domestic animal like a dog, and they're being cornered, what does the animal do? It, it's reaction. It's reactionary. It's, it's all it can do. It's reactive. There's no, like, sense of, hmm, what's happening here? How can I understand this situation? You know, wisdom and, and interpretation. They're just reactive. He said, I was a Bruce. A, keep saying Bruce. <laughs> Brute beast before you. I was like an animal ready to react. Verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. There's that same phrase like you see in verse two. But as for me, but as for me, wa'ani is the Hebrew. But for me, I am continually with you. You're here, Lord. You've always been here. You've always been with me and I've always been with you. Even though I got a little stuck, I got off track, you brought me back. Now he's in the sanctuary, he's back. You're, you're with me, God. Isn't that wonderful? We need to be reminded that the Lord is here. The Lord is working in our lives. That he's in our midst, that he hasn't forgotten us. He's not cast aside and said, try to figure out life on your own. I got more important things to do. No, you are his all in all, all in all. We are the apple of his eye. We're his kids, we're his children. Lord, you've always been with me. You hold me, you see me, you hold my right hand like a father holds a child. You direct me, you lead me. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel. The word counsel means purpose, advice. You advise me, you're, you're leading me. It's not just you're, you're taking me by the hand, but you're, you're speaking to me. Okay, we're gonna come to this turn in the road up here. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna get through this together. David understood this. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that's a reality. We, we are in this shadow. You are with me. 
your rod and your staff comfort me. And afterward, when my life, my sojourn is finished here, afterward, you will receive me to glory. See, there's the assurance. He was not gonna slip down into ruin and destruction. God would receive him into glory, that blessed assurance that we sing about right here. Verse five, 25, excuse me. Whom have I in heaven but you? Heaven is heaven because that's where God is. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. You're my desire. You're what I want. How foolish, how much of a brute beast was I to think that I could try to get all wrapped up in myself and look around and say, oh man, they've got it all made. To question your goodness when you are all that I want. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, aim for heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. Aim for earth, you'll get nothing. Simply a paraphrase or a reference to Jesus saying, store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail. Hello, it did and it does for us. My flesh and my heart, the word heart in Hebrew always means the inner person, the mind, the thinking, the will, the emotions, all of that. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's flipping the script. He's not saying, oh man, Lord, you're good to Israel. You're this, but for me, oh boy, not so much. He's flipping the script. He's saying, you're good. Your strength, your strength is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The word portion means an inheritance, like having a piece of property, piece of land. We have an inheritance with God. Verse 27, for behold, there's that word behold, look, see, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who was unfaithful to you, but for me, there it is again, the fourth time, wa'ani, but for me, but for me, it is good to be near God. Note the contrast, those who are far from you will perish, but those who are near, it's good. He's now coming full circle. He says in verse one, truly God is good to Israel for those who are pure in heart, but for me, uh, I'm not sure. Now he's saying, yes, God, you are good to me. And the best thing I can do is be close to you, is to be near you. And that's the best thing you can do as well, folks. I have made the Lord God my refuge, my shelter, my strong tower that I may tell, speak, utter, of all your works. Now he has something to tell the generation of those under him, right? Now he can say, you know what? I was in a really bad place, but praise God, he got me out of it. So let me give you a couple practical lessons quickly here. Number one, We all get stuck at times. We all get stuck. We get stuck in our circumstances. We get stuck in our heads. We get stuck in false thinking. We get stuck in a moment. We all get stuck. The question is, the key is to get unstuck. Psalm 30, verse five, weeping may tarry for the night. Pain may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. The question is, how do you get unstuck? Well, we saw Asaph's experience. Psalm 73 tells us, one of the best ways to get unstuck is to come into the sanctuary of God. Be with God and his people, right? 
Presence heals us. God's presence first and foremost. David said, I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I will not fear, Psalm 16:8. He says, in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there's pleasures forevermore, Psalm 16, 11. And then the presence of others. You all, the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus, are God's means of healing our struggles with God's goodness and the injustice of this world. And that's why we need to be here. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you know why you need this? Because we need to be encouraged. We need a surge of hope, folks, living in this dark time that we're living in. And God has given it to us. And for ASAP, everything changed when he entered into the sanctuary. And my final lesson, number three, is to keep the end in mind. Ultimately, ASAP was reminded of what was most important, what lies ahead, the promises of glory. And he realized the wicked, they're on the slippery slope. Their end, if they don't turn to Christ, their end is destruction. But we have a blessed assurance, an inheritance. 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, what we read earlier. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in this body, we are away from the Lord. We walk by faith and not by sight. Now here's my bonus lesson. This psalm should remind us that no matter what we go through in this life, no matter how hard it is, no matter what curveball is thrown our way, God is always good. How do we know? Because he sent Jesus, Yeshua, the rescuer, and he is good. He loved us that much. And so we're gonna celebrate God's goodness today and God's presence today through Emmanuel, through Jesus, by remembering what he did for us on the cross, by taking the Lord's Supper and taking and feeling it with our hands, the wafer, and reminding ourselves of the broken body of Jesus, and then taking the cup and feeling the substance and taking it and letting it feel go down our throats and feeling that and reminding ourselves of the blood that was spilled for us. That God is good because of Jesus, because of the rescuer who came to rescue us. And by the way, he's coming back for us. He's coming again. And so as we take communion, as we take the Lord's Supper, be encouraged this morning. Be reminded of how good we have we have it in the Lord. Let's pray together and then we'll, we'll begin our Lord's Supper time. Father God, you are good. Even though sometimes we don't feel it, but we get little tastes of heaven, little bits and pieces of manna that remind us and bring us back on track to say, oh yes, you are good. And the ultimate expression of that goodness is Jesus that you sent, Father God, you sent your one and only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And we bank on that. We don't bank on anything of this world or ourselves or anything else, but rather on the merit and the work of Christ. As we take the Lord's Supper, Lord, would you please remind us of the goodness that you've displayed, you've given us through Yeshua, through the rescuer, through Jesus, in Jesus' name, amen.